You are entering the Freedom Hut. The fight over how much testing is enough. Dr. Fauci testifies before the Senate. Cuomo calls it a European virus. Unmasking the unmaskers, courtesy of the Director of National Intelligence. A list of 2,000 deep staters for us to peruse. And an update on the Arbery shooting coming up. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. I think I can speak for three hours without a phone call. Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. In every generation, through every challenge and hardship and danger, America has risen to the task We have met the moment, and we have prevailed. Americans do whatever it takes to find solutions, pioneer breakthroughs, and harness the energies we need to achieve a total victory. Day after day, we're making tremendous strides with the dedication of our doctors and nurses. These are incredible people. These are brave people. These are warriors. With the devotion of our manufacturing workers, food suppliers, and lab technicians, And with the profound patriotism of the American people, we will defeat this horrible enemy. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. There you have the president yesterday addressing the American people on where we are with this fight against the coronavirus, notably on how we're doing on the issue of testing. And this has been the rallying cry of the anti-Trumpers for a while that we don't have good enough testing that we're being reckless because of the lack of testing. So Trump laid out a whole bunch of statistics yesterday uh, presented to the, to the press and to the American people along with them where we stand right now. And you're already hearing there's a back and forth. There's a fight. The Democrats say not good enough on testing. Now, there are reasons for this. Oh, here is uh, here is Bro Cuomo telling us uh and i always i'm always wondering whenever i see cuomo on, on the cut sheet which one of the bros cuomo are we talking about this is the cnn uh this is the the, the fredo of the two play clip seven let's be clear with each other there's no time to pretend we have not met the moment we have not prepa- prevailed on testing none of the states that have reopened none has the capacity to test and trace the way they need to. People still can't even get tested in too many hotspots. This is the reality. And until this president starts taking desperate actions, instead of just making desperate claims, you can't expect any of us to have the confidence that we need in this country to reopen. That only comes with the truth that testing and tracing can provide. Let me break this down for some of the anti-Trump idiots out there because they haven't thought this through. If we had the most magnificent, the most wonderful, it sounds like Trump describing a lot of things, right? But if we had the greatest testing system in the history of the planet, if we were 10x where South Korea is, if you could walk and get a test at the corner as quickly as you could walk and get a carton of milk, would that mean that you no longer have any worries about this disease? From, From an epidemiological standpoint, Would that actually mean that you don't have to be concerned if you're in a high risk category? They speak of testing like it's a vaccine or a cure or a treatment. All it is is additional data. And the problem that we haven't yet had the experts focus enough on is 
What if the lockdowns aren't really helping? We know they're destroying the economy. What if the lockdowns aren't really able to stop the spread of the virus? So it's still spreading all over the place. Now we're told that with testing, oh, we'll be better able to prevent the disease from getting around. It's already spreading to three. This is this is based on the expert analysis out there. Thirty uh, uh, three thousand new cases a day in the U.S. And they think three hundred thousand new infections a day. That was what Scott Gottlieb of the FDA told CBS a week ago. I have not seen that challenged everywhere. 300,000 people are getting infected with this every day based on that extrapolation. Do you really think that if we just know who those 300,000 people... Oh, let's scratch that. Do you think that if we had the best testing in the world, we would ever be able to track in real time those 300,000 people and prevent them from possibly infecting one other person? Or two, or three, or who knows how many. There's so much about this disease we don't really understand. Why are some people... It seems there's a theory out there about super spreaders, that there are some people that have uh, much higher viral load that they shed than others. They don't know this. This is just a theory. But there are a lot of theories. And the problem with the people that keep saying, listen to the experts, is that the experts don't have all the answers. In fact, they have very few answers on this. All we really have is data and then educated guesses. And the data tells us that right now, while they're all whining about testing, and the reason they're doing it is very clearly because this is an, an opportunity to make this about the administration response, right? We, we've already, we've lost the numbers as of today, what, over, over 80,000? People are dying every day, even with the status of the virus as it is. So what is this new focus on, oh, there's a recklessness from the Trump administration because of the lack of testing? That's not, it's not going to stop people who have the disease from dying. It's almost certainly not going to be able to prevent this disease from continuing to spread. You know, we have here. Here's a perfect example. I mean, just apply your own logic and thought processes to this. Don't don't get cowed. Don't get pushed around. Like people say, oh, look at this expert. Look at that expert. You want to see how brilliant Dr. Fauci is when it comes to prediction? Go back and read what he was saying about AIDS in the 1980s and who was at risk and how it was spread and what we needed to do to contain it. It was about as wrong as a human being can be about anything. But he's the global expert on. Right. But we had 20, 30 years, 30 years of knowledge of what HIV actually is. And we learned about it and we had real data. And then we all, you know, once once the information is in, then we all have access to that. Then we all know what the truth is. But in the early stages, the experts don't they don't have some magic crystal ball where they can say, well, this is what's going to happen with this or this is how. The, the numbers will end up. They have no idea. This is why all these projections have been ridiculous. But just think it through this way. Uh, I, I, I had the flu confirmed, a diagnosis of the flu f- four years ago now. Right, Actually, when I started my syndicated radio show, I got rocked with the flu. I was able to go to a uh, neighborhood you know, clinic and get a uh, quick, rapid uh, flu test diagnosis. And yeah, they said, you got the flu. And I went home. Okay. Um, I probably had been contagious for three days before that, at least 48 hours before I showed. And, and I didn't go to the doctor right away. So, you know, you're contagious, contagious maybe 48 hours before you show symptoms. I went to the doctor maybe the second or third day. I felt really sick. So how many people was I coming to contact with? How many people was I around in that period? I mean, I have no idea. I'm in an elevator in New York City. Lots of other people are getting on and getting off. I'm touching buttons. I'm touching door handles. I'm mean, test and trace 
as some kind of panacea is a fantasy. It's never going to happen. We have rapid tests for influenza and it spreads like wildfire and tens of thousands of people die from it every year. Millions of cases, hundreds of thousands of hospitalizations every year. Do we have a test and trace system to prevent influenza from spreading? So why would we be able to prevent the spread of this disease through test? I'm not saying test and trace has no place. Obviously, you need to have tests for antibodies and you need to be able to find out if you have this disease. Testing is a helpful tool, but it's they're putting so much on this because there's a psychological need for people right now who have been part of the lockdown chorus to think if only we did or rather if only Trump did this thing better. We wouldn't be in this position. That's what it all comes down to. If only Trump were not messing this up so badly. And so that's why they fixate on this one thing. They fixate on this one area because that becomes the line of attack based on the data and the science. I walked you through yesterday what the South Korean plan for test and trace is. And I think as I was reading it to you, a lot of you were thinking, well, that's never going to. It's never going to happen and we would never allow it to happen. I'm not having the government put an ankle monitor on me and make me download an app to tell them personal health data every day and accept that they have the power to tell any person that I may have come even near before I knew that I might have had COVID-19. They have to stay home for 14 days and, gotta, and have to isolate themselves from anyone else. You don't think that's going to cause problems? As I, as I keep saying, this is just not feasible. Yeah, have some tracers, have some have lots of tests. We got tests everywhere. But then yesterday, it just turned into them not agreeing, them not accepting the numbers, the data. Uh, the president saying that we are now at a point where we have done more tests than any other country. And we have, I mean, the here, whoops, I, sorry, slap, slap things around sometimes here on the desk. I have uh, a slide that the president showed at the briefing. We have 79 diagnostic tests authorized, 78 nucleic acid tests, one antigen-based test, 25 testing devices authorized, 12 serology tests authorized. And yet, you know what the truth is? If you're at high risk and you're able to get one of these tests right away, none of these tests do anything for your prospects of not being hospitalized and making it through this disease in one piece. They don't do anything. So if you get this, you're still pretty much on your own. It's really just your own immune system. I mean, the, the health system will try to do what it can for you, but it's minimal. We are primitive in our response to this disease still. It is effectively systems, a basic system management of, of your body. Uh, try to stay hydrated. Uh, try to stay you know, as well rested as you, as you can while you're fighting off this disease. There's not really much beyond that. So while they keep telling us to turn to the scientists and don't listen to Trump, they then turn around and suggest things that aren't supported at all by the science. This is going to come back in the fall. This is going to be a disease that also is spreading along with the flu. And it's going to be spreading all over the country. Even if we eradicated COVID-19 tomorrow in America, it will exist somewhere in the world. There are a lot of uh, poor countries that have no means of doing this kind of testing. And all it takes is one person, as we know. And there's also so many unanswered huge questions about this, like Ohio just figured out yesterday they reported on this five people in Ohio, not one of the coastal cities, not one of the, you know, metropolises that has flights coming every day from Wuhan or from northern Italy or whatever. Ohio had five people with this disease who died of this disease in January. Very unlikely that the first remember the, the fatality rate is less than one percent. So it's very unlikely that those five people were the first people in Ohio to get infected. 
and there's a two week incubation period. So what are the what are the real chances that there were at least some people walking around Ohio with COVID-19 in December? Remember, we, we call it COVID-19 It's because we heard of it, it was found in China then, but it might have existed in a whole lot of other places. I'm just bringing that up because there are a lot of unanswered questions. And yet there is this belief of an expert class that can tell you what we need to do, what the economy should do, how quickly we should reopen, how much testing is really acceptable. How much te- how many tests do we really need to do? I mean, here's what the president said yesterday at this press conference, which also turned into a, a debacle with the journos trying to make a, a stand against how you know they hate Trump. The usual the usual nonsense. Play four. Every American should be proud of the amazing array of talent, skill, and enterprise our nation has brought to this challenge. In three months, the FDA has authorized more than 92 different tests, and over 9 million have been performed here in the United States. Three weeks ago, we were conducting roughly 150,000 tests per day. Now we're doing approximately 300,000 tests per day, a 100% increase, and it will go up substantially from that number. This week, the United States will pass 10 million tests conducted, nearly double the number of any other country. We're testing more people per capita than South Korea, the United Kingdom, France, Japan, Sweden, Finland, and many other countries, and in some cases combined. So here's the problem with this press conference. The, the liberals' favorite anti-Trump talking point, if we're not doing enough testing, it's reckless. Where's the testing? He's like, well, actually, we're doing more testing than anybody else, certainly any country of even roughly comparable size. We are the number one tester in the world. You know what they did after that, though? It was stunning. They made it an issue that he was comparing us to the rest of the world. Why would you compare us? Is this a competition? Yeah, that's how dishonest the journals are. They spent weeks saying, why are we so far behind these other countries? Huh? Huh, Mr. President? Why are these other countries so much better than we are at testing? So then Trump comes out. He says, all right, guess what? We're better than everybody at testing. You know what they say? Why are you comparing yourself to other countries? These people are sociopaths. They're a danger to the country. They're a disgrace. And they have access to the White House and they're in the White House press pool. It's uh, it's stunning, my friends, but that is what we are up against. The fight over testing is really just now a proxy over politics. They have no idea. Do these people even know when, when Cuomo's, you know, we're not, re- we're not ready for this yet, you know? Hey, someone passed me a protein shake. Uh, when, when someone raises, for example, that there are a lot of testing sites that do not even have people showing up, so they're closing. How are you going to get to two, mil- two million tests a day is what Zeke Emanuel, brother of Ari Emanuel, and confidant of the Obama administration, uh, that's what he has said we need to be at. And we're, I think, at 1.3 million or something like that. Or, we're, or sorry, we're going to be at 1.3 million a day by September. That's, that's the, the guess. But we need to be at almost double that. How are you going to get so many people to take these tests? How often are they going to take them? Are, are you all planning to walk into a clinic every two weeks and get a COVID test just because? Oh, maybe the left is planning to mandate this in different states. You see, they, they're going to say that the data... The data is their justification for taking even more power and authority into their hands over every aspect of this. And that means every aspect of you. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. 
said many times that the U.S. is doing far better than any other country when it comes to testing. Yes. Why does that matter? Why is this a global competition to you if everyday Americans are still losing their lives and we're still seeing more cases every day? Well, they're losing their lives everywhere in the world. And maybe that's a question you should ask China. Don't ask me. Ask China that question, okay? When you ask them that question, you may get a very unusual answer. Yes, behind you, please. Sir, why are you saying that to me specifically? I'm telling you, I'm not saying it specifically to anybody. I'm saying it to anybody that would ask a nasty question like that. That's not a nasty question. Please go ahead. Why does it matter? Okay, uh, anybody else? Please go ahead in the back, please. I have two questions. No, it's okay. But you pointed to me. I have two questions, Mr. Next. President. Next, please. But you did. You called on me. I did, and you didn't respond, and now I'm calling on Sorry, I just the young lady in the back, please. I just wanted to let my colleague finish, okay. but can I ask you Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Appreciate but it. Thank you very much. What a disgrace for the journalists involved. One of them I know, corrupted by CNN. It's a shame, but that's what happens. You work there long enough. You got to get out of there with your soul intact. Very proud to this day that CNN said, oh, Buck, we would like to keep you. And Buck said, no, thank you. I'm out. This is this has been uh, not fun. And uh, I don't I don't want to be in this place in any capacity anymore, professionally or otherwise. But thanks. Um, Notice what happened there. You had the as exactly as I told you for weeks and we should go. I could go back and pull the audio for you for weeks. It's why aren't we testing as well as South Korea? Why aren't we testing as well as Germany? And now the president says, actually, if you look at the numbers, we're testing better than anybody. They go, why is it a competition? (laughs) These people are a disgrace. They're horrific. No ethics, no honor. And then for the Asian American journalist there to say, why are you say to try to play the race card? Why would you say that to me? Um, Are you the dumbest person on the planet? That's what he should have asked her, because Trump speaks about China a hundred times a day. He yells about China to everybody who will listen to him. For her to pretend for one second that because she happens to be Asian American, that's why he brought up, go ask China what's going on, is beyond stupid. But the journos were out there, you know, supporting this claim, pretending, oh, look, Trump is, he's not doing enough testing and he's racist. I mean, these people are like little spoiled idiot children. And they're the ones that are demanding more respect all the time. And they think that they're part of the the hashtag resistance. They're, they're pure imbeciles, and the country is in a very difficult period right now. We are hurting, and we need mature adults to be asking questions and to be bringing us worthwhile information. Not this theatrical BS that we get. And what it just, it's stunning, isn't it? You, you heard it for yourself. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, clearly the president was rattled, rattled enough to walk off because he didn't want to hear the questions from Caitlin Collins and Weijia Zhang. And uh, I think what we saw in that exchange with Weijia Zhang is something that has racial overtones. Uh, It is racist to look at an Asian-American White House correspondent and say, ask China. This isn't happening in a vacuum. This is part of a pattern of behavior from the president that goes back many years. So he's he doesn't have the benefit of the doubt that someone might have if for the first time ever in their life, they made a comment like that to a reporter. But the president has been rattled by Weijia Zhang's questions in the past. He has treated her and other female reporters differently in the past. And he's also had this pattern of reacting to minority journalists in a very specific and different way. 
Oh yeah, because because he's so he's so sweet all the time to ABC's Jonathan Carl. Because Trump, because Trump is always just overflowing with praise for all the different CNN, you know, all the different CNN journalists who are white males, for example. Oh, no, yeah, no, that's that's right. It's only it's only the female minorities that Trump says, hey, stop being a jerk to. I mean, Stelter is the worst person on television. I'm actually curious. Brian Stelter is really the mayor de Blasio of TV. In that I, I, I want to run this experiment. I've never met a person. And I mean this. Now, there are other people that I don't like, that I think do bad work and are dishonest and scummy, that I know they have big audiences and people will watch them and listen. To them. And, I, and I, I mean, it's a shame, but there's, there are people who watch, you know, there are people who watch the primetime shows at CNN and they think that they're getting objective truth in journalism. And it's a shame that they're so uh, emotionally and intellectually lacking in sophistication that they really believe that that's kind of sad if they if they know they're getting left-wing dnc talking points that's fine i mean they can but if they really think that they're getting true journalism i think that that's uh that's a little sad um but with stelter just like with de blasio i've never met in in life a human being who thinks that that stelter or de blasio is good at the job and worthwhile never not once um, but he does, I mean, Selter does Zucker's bidding, and he looks like, he's like a bitty Zucker. He's like, I look like Zucker 30 years ago. We kind of look alike, and we're kind of, you know, it's, it's amazing to go on TV and just, I don't know if it's self-neutered or, or what, but I, mean, I love Tucker referring to him as CNN's, <laughs> CNN's in-house eunuch was my favorite, my favorite thing that he said a long time, and referred to Zucker as CNN's diminutive Oh, no, a, a reclusive dwarf king, <laughs> which was also great. Uh, good times. Good stuff. Good stuff, Big T. So um, anyway, I mean, the, the Ouija Jang stuff, I mean, Trump speaks about China all the time. He's saying blame China for all the terrible things that have happened. Don't blame me. It has nothing to do with Ouija Jang being Asian. And everyone knows it. And it's uh, Asian American. Everyone knows that it. it's stupid. And yet, you know, oh, I thought they're racial overtones. Uh. Got his own show at CNN. They're probably paying him close to a million dollars a year, I'd guess, to do that show. To be horrible, but it is it is what it is. Yeah, it's it's stunning. It's appalling. It's stunning. That's where we are. So now we have. Um, oh, oh, we had we had the the speaking um, today in front of. Well, it wasn't in front of actually because the the Senate is socially distanced and they had people testifying via remote. But you had. Um, Rand Paul, for example, who was talking, uh, talking to Dr. Fauci. And this is how the exchange went. I, th- I thought you, sh- you should hear some of this. We're going to have a national strategy and nobody's going to go to school. It's kind of ridiculous. We really ought to be doing it school district by school district. And the power needs to be dispersed because people make wrong predictions. And really the history of this, when we look back, will be of wrong prediction after wrong prediction after wrong prediction, starting with uh, Ferguson in England. So I think we ought to have a a little bit of humility in in our uh, belief that we know what's best for the economy. And as much as I respect you, Dr. Fauci, I don't think you're the end all. I don't think you're the one person that gets to make a decision. We can listen to your advice, but there are people on the other side saying there's not going to be a surge and that we can safely open the economy. And the facts will bear this out. If we keep kids out of school for another year, what's going to happen is the poor and underprivileged kids who don't have a parent that's able to teach them at home are not going to learn for a full year. And I think we ought to look at the Swedish model and we ought to look at letting our kids get back to school. I think it's a huge mistake if we don't open the schools in the fall. 
Now, I'm going to let Dr. Fauci respond to that. It's fun. It's like I'm running the Senate hearing right now. And I'll, I'll, I'll let Fauci have his say. But I think first hearing from Rand Paul there, this is important. We really have been led to believe by the libs that if only we listen to St. Fauci, everything will be fine. St. Fauci does not uh, does not have all the answers. St. Fauci is not in a position to tell us when we should open the economy, what we should do and how we should do it. He's just advising and he's been not wrong in the distant past. I brought up his history with the uh, early days in the, of the HIV epidemic. Again, we didn't know a lot about HIV when it first came out. Guess what? We know very little about COVID-19, really. All we know is that it's very unlikely, even if you get it, to kill you. It is very dangerous to people in the over 70 age category. Pretty darn dangerous, 60 to 70. And then it drops off dramatically below that. And you know, this, these are the things that we know. Those are critical for public policy decision making. But in terms of the you know, mechanism of transmission and what it does fully into the in the body and how we treat it, there's so much that is that is unknown. Um, you know, the uh, Alex Berenson, who has gotten so much ire from the left and people are so angry at him um, because he's willing to question the, the dominant narrative on this stuff. He shared yesterday on his Twitter account a study from the CDC that was published February 6th. And that's a study. It was a peer reviewed study in I forget. It was called like the Journal of Infectious Disease or something similar to that. But I'm going by memory. All I do is read about this stuff, but I can't remember every citation. And it was he but he, it's on his Twitter account. So you can check it out and I'll, I'll do a look. I'll do a look for it in a little bit. But it essentially said that they're not sure that for influenza, which is very we would assume very similar in its transmission mechanism to COVID-19. They're not even really sure that masks do all that much. That's what the study said on February 6th. Like, I mean, it might help a little bit, but not really very much. I, I mean, look, peer-reviewed, it was a cdc.gov-cited paper. You, the website was cdc.gov, and it published this peer-reviewed paper where all these doctors were like, yeah, based on the data. So there's so much. I, and I'm not saying that masks don't work. or I'm not trying to do that thing. I'm just telling you there's so much they don't know. And to allow them to make these decisions for us and, and to pretend there aren't enormous political implications for all of this, too. Oh, just listen to Fauci. Well, what does that mean? How long does every state have to sit around and watch their uh, economy collapse? And I think what's happened in the last couple of weeks is folks have recognized that once we can start our economy again, it's going to be like crawling out of the ditch. We're not going to jump up and start running and everything's great all over again. It's going to be rough going for a while. It's going to be a slow, tough slog back to normal over many months. Could even be a couple years. That's really what we're looking at right now. Um, and who knows? I mean, there, do I think there's going to be a second wave with the reopening with the warmer weather? No, I do not. If I'm wrong, I'll come on air and say it. But I, and when I mean a second wave, I mean something like New York happening somewhere else in the country. Because you'd, you would think that if we just start to reopen state after state after state, Somewhere would get hit really, really badly. Um, that's what they're telling us, right? At least I shouldn't say you would think that's what they are claiming. I, I don't think that's going to happen. Do I think there might be a big resurgence of this in the fall? But yes, but that'll happen no matter what we do. So these are the these are hard calls to make. They're difficult decisions. Uh, there are a lot of political implications for them. And for Rand Paul to be saying to Dr. Fauci, look, I don't think you're the only person whose opinion matters here. That seems pretty obvious to me, right? We should all understand that that's true. But it's almost sacrilege right now. 
And he, look, here, here's what he did to respond. Mr. Chairman, can I respond to that even though there are only 32 seconds left? Yes, and you might make it clear whether or not you suggested that uh, we shouldn't go back to school in the fall. Well, uh, first of all, uh, Senator Paul, thank you for your comments. I, I have never made myself out to be the end all and only voice in this. I'm a scientist, a physician, and a public health official. I give advice according to the best scientific evidence. There are a number of other people who come into that and give advice that are more related to the things that you spoke about about the need to get the country back open again and economically. I don't give advice about economic things. I don't give advice about anything other than public health. Yeah, but public health affects the economy a whole lot right now, doesn't it? It's a little disingenuous. I, I didn't really like this response. We, we don't need him to get all defensive and smarmy about it. I also thought it was weird that he was calling Bro Cuomo every night while he had COVID-19, while he's basically running the COVID-19 task force for 320 million Americans. We're going to call Cuomo every night, make sure he's okay. And there are thousands and thousands of people dying of this all over the country. But, you know, you got to check in on the CNN anchor that you like so much every night. I mean, he's allowed to. It's America. But it just struck me as odd when I read that story. It struck me as weird. Um, I've I've tried to be uh, fair minded toward Dr. Fauci in this whole thing. And I'm not going to say that he has has lost all of my uh, all, all of my willingness to listen. But I'll tell you this much. I'm not impressed by the guy. He has yet to tell me a single thing that I did not already know just from reading the Internet and using common sense and has actually said things that were against common sense. And I think he was proven to have been uh, overly alarmist and wrong about. So when I look at someone's record, that's, I think, the best way. He says the data. What's the data on Fauci and his prognostications at this point? What's the data on the lockdowns and how they've actually played out versus what they told us would happen? They've been wrong a lot. And I think that should matter when they're now telling us, listen to us again about the about the reopening when they were too they were at least too slow on the shutdown, probably far too uh, one size fits all in the shutdown. And I think have done incalculable damage already to the economy. That's what I think. So, yeah, Fauci, you are not the be all end all. And Rand Paul's right for saying it. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. When we started this, yes, we have more cases than anyone else. Yes, we had this European virus attack us and nobody expected it. But we're not only going to change our trajectory, we're going to change the trajectory more dramatically than any place else in the nation. Do you hear that, folks? Governor of New York, who's done a a now, as we see, because we have data, we can look at the facts, a, a horrifically bad job as the top public health official for the state of New York, which is what the governor ends up being, right? The same way he's the top law enforcement official, he's the top of the executive branch, For New York State, Cuomo has presided over the biggest disaster, not just in the United States, but in the world for COVID-19. And he's taking the very clear political position here of referring to COVID-19 as a European virus. What is that all about? Why would he do that? And you you can tell no one. I've never heard anyone else say that there was this this effort. uh, There's this story that was written in The New York Times 
about how some of the virus mutated in in Italy and other parts of Europe. And then that was what made its way. That mutated virus made its way to the East Coast of the United States. Now, the virus is constantly mutating everywhere. Right. There are mutations of viruses that are that are occurring in real time all the time. You don't always change the name of the virus for every place that it stops over other than its initial place of discovery or else you'd have to change the name of the virus every every year and nobody would know what the heck you're talking about. It makes no sense. Right. I mean, think about this for a moment. What 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 a moronic thing to do. But he did it for a reason. Right. And the reason is virtue signaling and also just trying to contradict the Trump administration. Trump has been very forceful on condemning China, China for what it's done here. And his not just the you know, not just uh, the president himself, but also Secretary of State Pompeo and others have been saying, look, China is a bad actor in this and continues to be a bad actor in this. And as we know, was hoarding PPE, was hoarding the materials that it believed were necessary to fight this disease while they were telling everybody else, oh, no, don't worry about this. It can't even go human to human, right? If the disease can't go human to human, we have zero worry about it. That's what the World Health Organization and what China told us in January. We have zero worry. You know, it's like, don't go, don't go take a bubble bath with a pangolin and you'll be fine, right? I mean, it's, who cares? Not a big deal. If it can't, if it, unless it can go human to human, we're not all worried about it. And yet, here we are. We're watching as our own government officials try to cover up for China's illicit acts here, the, uh, the amount of devastation that has been wrought because the Chinese Communist Party is a, is a corrupt, immoral theocracy, uh, sorry, thugocracy, not theocracy, they hate God, uh, the, uh, thugocracy. It's really a mafia state. And here you have Cuomo blame. What, what's, what was the point of that? Somebody should really, if we had real journalists, they'd say, why, why are you calling it the Europe? We call it the Chinese coronavirus because, as the president says, it comes from China, which is true. They believe so much in science. They believe so much in fact, they claim. That's where this virus comes from. And it's not the first time a virus has come from China. In fact, we have a whole series of horrific upper, upper respiratory infections that come from China. And it has to do with their practices for raising livestock. And it has to do with their propensity in some parts of the country, and actually a lot of parts of the country, for eating bizarre animals as some kind of cultural practice, stretching back to when people were not able to feed themselves because Mao was such an idiot that he destroyed the ability for people even at a subsistence farming level to feed themselves with his collectivist policies. Oh, that's right. The government can be a big terrible monstrosity don't forget it 60 million dead in mao's great famine 60 million starved to death yeah and that was in the 20th century in the middle of it my friends so just remember that that's the chinese communist party for you so cuomo wants you to be clear i mean he he almost sounds like someone who's on the ccp the chinese communist party's payroll yes the european virus you know, we will not do more until we get to the place of more testing. What do I mean by that? Testing is a situation where you have somebody that runs what you would call a test. This is how he does all these briefings. And I admit in the beginning, at least he wasn't trashing Trump like other people were. So I was saying, look, he's, he's, he's keeping it neutral. He's being 
But then I realized every day it's the same darn thing. And then then I realized everything that he's been saying is wrong and he didn't protect the nursing homes. So, you know, as the facts change, the assessment changes. And he's done a horrible job. Uh, But he wants he wants the journos and the left to know, you know, it's the European virus. No, it's not a European virus at all. No scientist on planet Earth who knows anything and who's being honest and doesn't have a gun to his head from the Chinese Communist Party would say that it's a European virus. As Trump says, it comes from China. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, since we're not talking about terrorism, team, I'm not an expert in it by trade, but we got somebody who is when it comes to health and what to do about this response. We are joined now by Dr. Scott Atlas of the Hoover Institution. He was former chief of neuroradiology at Stanford University Medical School. He also wrote a piece for The Hill. The data is in Stop the Panic and End the Total Isolation that has been read millions of times already since its publication a couple of weeks ago. Dr. Scott Atlas, thanks so much for joining. Sure. Thanks for having me. All right. Let's let's just start. I mean, I have I have a lot of things I want to ask you. We really appreciate you giving us some of your time today. But let's start with the the fight over reopening, which has really turned into a fight over testing. Yesterday, the president had a press conference in which you had a lot of journalists becoming very testy with him over this issue. Pardon the phrase. Uh, and the suggestion is always that we're not testing enough. And, and if we only tested more, we would finally be out of the woods with this thing. What's the truth of test and trace as you see it as a policy? Sure. OK, so testing has an important role in what to do next. And we didn't talk about what could have been done, what should have been done. That's not relevant. It's only what to do now. And the role of testing is actually strategically important for three people, three groups of people. Number one, anyone who walks into or works in a nursing home, because those are the most vulnerable people. In fact, I've said it before, every third year medical student in the country knew those were the most vulnerable people because people with older people with underlying chronic diseases like diabetes, renal failure, heart failure, and immunocompromised people. Those are the high-risk people, and these, by the data, have been the high-risk people. 30, maybe roughly 30% of people who have died in the U.S. are in nursing homes. By the way, uh, you have to remember before I uh, go on, these are people living in a restricted entry situation already. It's not that difficult to actually understand once you know they're vulnerable, which we did from day one, the lockdown should have been on that group. Instead, we have more than 5,000 deaths in New York. We have thousands of people, maybe 20,000, probably more, died in nursing homes. Some states, many states, more than 50% of people who have died are nursing home people. People who are already, we can't just walk into a nursing home to begin with. This should have been day one. Uh, but you know, we have to understand that once we know that the risk of death for everybody overall is tenfold less than what was originally said. We're talking about 99% of people have either no symptoms or mild disease. And so when we see that, and we know by now, I'm getting to your answer, that millions of people have the infection. Okay, that's just factually true. It's documented by the zero zero positive antibody testing, and it has been verified in many, many places. So we know that the people that should be tested then 
One, nursing home entrance. Two, doctors and first responders because they're dealing with patients who have diseases. We can't have them spreading to vulnerable people. Three, patients with respiratory symptoms or symptoms of an upper respiratory infection, fever, who come into a medical center. Those three people need testing. But the idea of contact tracing, although it's important for future pandemics, although it's important if we get another dose of this pandemic, fall, winter, spring, that's important. But right now, the role of contact tracing is to prevent a pandemic from taking hold. Once a pandemic is in place, which this is, you neither should prioritize contact tracing, nor even can. It's literally ludicrous. I hate to speak with hyperbole, but when I get uh, going on this, it's hard to stop because millions of people have the disease. What are you going to do? Test somebody, and then there's 10 million people in the U.S. who have the infection. A guy gets on the subway in New York. He's been on two subways. What, how are you going to trace that? We know people are infected. There's a ton of people infected already. They've already contacted people. And back to my point of 99% of people have mild or no symptoms, 50% are asymptomatic. You can't contact trace when millions of people already have the infection. It is not a predicate for reopening. It's something for later on down the line once we're past this pandemic, and then we're anticipating the potential, not the certainty of a second wave, but the potential of a second wave. So with the reopening, and we're speaking to Dr. Scott Atlas, who was the uh, former chief of neuroradiology at Stanford University Medical Center. He's at the Hoover Institution now. Uh, with the, the status of the reopening right now, uh, we keep getting told, wait two more weeks or, oh, wait for the second wave. Doc, how worried are you about states like Georgia and Texas and others that have done this phased reopening? What what do you see happening right now? And what is it that the more catastrophist-minded experts and policymakers are missing here? They're missing, we're witnessing really the absence of logic in public policy, okay? We know a lot about this disease. We're not starting from day one anymore. The fear and panic that, honestly, everyone was afraid. I was personally afraid when I first saw these death rates and, oh my God, new infection. We know what's happening now. We instituted a policy to do, to do something. The policy was to flatten the curves. What curves? Not the curve of cases. Because the more you test, the more cases there are. And so, we were talking, they, everyone was talking about flattening the curves for hospitalizations per day and deaths per day, with the goal being really only one goal. The goal was always one thing and one thing only, stop the overcrowding of hospitals so that we didn't get a bunch of deaths from other people and an overwhelming of the system. And so the, the deaths per day really, to stop the deaths, you have to protect the people who are going to die. I mean, this is not that complicated. And we know how to do that. What we've learned is that there's a much lower fatality rate than originally thought that induced this fear and this isolation total shutdown. We know who to protect. And we know that we can get people who are mildly ill. We can assume they have the infection, younger, healthier people who don't need medical care because 98, 99% of people who get the infection do not need significant medical care. 
they have these sort of flu upper respiratory infections or they're entirely asymptomatic. If they're sick, they should isolate, self-isolate at home. And then we smartly and strategically use the three testing type groups that I mentioned, and then we open the low-risk groups. What are the low-risk groups? We open K through 12 schools. There is zero scientific evidence to think you should keep K through 12 schools closed. Very, very rare to get a serious illness in that age group. Almost unheard of to die in that age group. We hear a lot of sensationalist stories now coming out in the news, even last night, uh, about children getting these rare uh, diseases from possibly associated with COVID-19. That does not change the overwhelming amount of evidence we have. In fact, every infection known to man has exceptions where a group of people who are not typically vulnerable have severe, if not lethal, complications. This is true in the flu. In my own career, I've seen many, many cases of brain inflammation, overwhelming inflammation in children from post-flu disease, influenza. 100 people a year in the U.S. die of chickenpox. The exceptions do not disprove the rule. This is what I mean by lack of logic. And so we, we should be opening schools. We should be protecting highly vulnerable people, like even high-risk teachers. Although, by the way, the median age of a teacher in K through 12 is 41. It's not 65. So when you look at who should be protected, we know who to protect. We know that children are not at risk for being sick or get hospitalized or die. They should be going to school. We know that most offices and restaurants and public businesses can be open. How? With smart new guidelines on hygiene, sanitization standards, warnings about elderly customers and at-risk people educating the public. We know how to socially distance now. That was never even a word in our vocabulary. We know how to protect these people, but there's zero reason to institute lockdown. There's no science behind that. That's simply when fear has really impacted public policy. Well, Dr. Dr. Adler, can I I just, can I just, I just want to jump because this is, this is really important because whenever someone who's not of your background and expertise even questions whether the lockdown was sound policy, they are shouted down, screamed at, and, and people will say horrible things. Uh, do you think, because you have the background, so people can't dismiss you and then just say you know nasty things about how you're not an expert, do you think the lockdown policy was worth it based on the data we have now? I'll correct you and say that they can say nasty things. Well, no, that's true, right. But, but they, they, uh, they, they, they can't really dismiss you, but go ahead, yeah. So, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the answer is, it, if I were doing it and what I said from the beginning and many others said, the best strategy would have been a targeted, sensible, knowledge-based strategy of who to, who to protect. Now, that doesn't say that, it, I don't want to say it was, You know, it wasn't wrong to do total lockdown uh, because, you know, something had to be done. There was it was it it could have been justified. There was a three to four percent fatality rate in a disease that no one really thought had any anyone had immunity to. I don't want to criticize that. But what is wrong is the extension of the lockdown, because we do know what we're doing now. We do have mobilization of resources. We do see flattened curves. Most, if, if you have a state or a region or a city 
with a flattened curve without a massive amount of there there was no overwhelming outside of the new york the new york tri-state area had 50 to 60 percent of all the deaths okay i mean manhattan had a had an overwhelmed system and okay that's a different situation but that's not california okay And, and that's not iowa that's not michigan that's nowhere else even though michigan got hit pretty hard you know that's not new york city so the, the extension of the lockdown, it's not just that it wasn't logical or that it isn't logical, that it's actually not obeying the science. It's also totally ignoring what rational people do in policy and in life. And that is the harms of the policy itself. There is an obsession now that is developed based on fear and honestly ignorance uh, that somehow we must stop COVID-19 infections at all costs. Okay, this is completely irrational. I don't think Americans have a hard time understanding this. When they understand what we know and the evidence, and we have a smart way to reopen, nobody's saying let's have a new Woodstock festival here. What we're saying is let's smartly and strategically open in a way that not only protects people, but allays their fears because I could swing open the doors tomorrow and most people aren't going to come because they're afraid. But there has been this COVID-19 at all costs mentality, which actually is the only incentive that somebody like on the, uh, you know, basic scientists presume, you know, even Dr. Fauci. Okay, I'm not going to criticize Dr. Fauci. The guy's a brilliant scientist with an incredible career and as a public servant and in everything else he's done. His incentive is to stop COVID-19 at all costs. These are not the way policies are designed. If we were going to stop COVID-19 at all costs, we're ignoring the harms. What are the harms? 150,000 people a month in the United States have new cancer. They're not getting diagnosed. Half of people on chemotherapy with cancer are not going for their chemo. Two-thirds to three-fourths of people getting cancer screening Okay, women are not getting their pap smears, 70% of them roughly. Two-thirds of children in California are not getting their childhood vaccinations. Why? Because of the fear instilled into the American public by fearful, fear-mongering, really, unfortunately, although well-intended, politicians with their statements about these projections, et cetera, that are alarming and sensationalized by the media. But the reality is we are killing people with the policy. Now, this is very important. We don't shut down the world from November to March every year because of deaths from influenza. Why not? I mean, if people want to shut down because of these deaths, there are more than 500,000 deaths per flu season every year, even with a vaccine, and antiviral drugs, 500,000 plus deaths from influenza every winter. Globally. Why aren't we shutting down everything? We have 50,000 Americans die every season from the flu. Why don't we shut down from November to March? Yeah, if you even ask this question. Yeah, they don't have an answer for this. And if you ask the question, you get in trouble. I I, I see this, you know, uh, and we're speaking to Dr. Scott Atlas of the Hoover Institution, former chief of neuroradiology at Stanford University Medical School. We've only got a couple of minutes, Doc. I, I wanted to ask you, though, we keep hearing that it's not safe to reopen until we get to some 
number of tests. I mean, the tracing thing, I'm not a doctor, but I've already figured out that this for exactly what you said. This is absurd. I mean, you have 300,000 new infections, they think, a day right now based on the 3,000 new cases a day. This is what Dr. Scott Gottlieb of the FDA said a week ago. How we're going to. We're, we, we don't even have enough tracers to find 10,000 cases in New York City. You're gonna, it's, it's crazy. But on the testing alone side of it, put aside the trace part, they keep saying we have to get to 2 million, 2 million a day. We have testing centers that are closing. So what do we do about it? Because no one's taking the tests. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of confusion and really sort of this is sort of a problem of, sort of people who can do a Google search and think they're an expert, as well as our partial information information. Uh, There are people who are epidemiologists and statisticians who want testing, but they don't understand and not taking into account the harm of the delays of opening. Again, there's there has to be an application of logic. We have knowledge. By the way, 99% of people about have minimal disease or asymptomatic disease. This sort of infection is not the lethal infection that people are frantic about that creates total confinement. And in fact, it's a way to develop population-based immunity. This is how viruses are eradicated. We have people who get antibodies. They block these networks of infection toward the vulnerable. I mean, this is a, a, a basic fundamental fact of immunology and medical science We've known this for decades. People say, oh, we don't know everything about the virus. Of course, we don't know everything about the virus. But we do know that for decades, coronavirus family viruses have one to two years of resistance once you have antibodies. We do believe in antibodies. That's the whole reason why scientists are excited about transfusing antibodies for a cure or a protection. You know, antibodies from people who have already had the disease. We do believe in anti. If you don't believe in antibodies, you cannot believe in vaccines at all. Why were you waiting for a vaccine if you don't think that the antibodies are going to confer resistance? Vaccines are injecting something that makes someone create antibodies. Right. If you don't believe that's protective, what kind of rational thought would be that you believe in vaccines? Well, well we appreciate your rationality here and expertise, Doc. Dr. Scott Atlas of the Hoover Institution, really appreciate your time, sir. Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope you'll come back again. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Joe Biden's still running for president, everybody. You remember that? No one even talks about it right now. The best thing they can do for Biden, and they've even come out and said this, which is pretty amazing. The best thing they can do for Joe Biden is make sure no one really sees him or hears from him. But occasionally he has to appear in public and answer questions and pretend like he's you know, really a candidate other than just uh, just a figurehead, you know, that that he's going to convince people to vote for him when really it's just up to the media and the left wing apparatus to make sure that uh, they'll vote for not Trump, whatever not Trump is. They should just put not Trump on the ballot. You know, the ballots that they're going to make sure are mailed in so they can cheat without getting caught those ballots. Uh, But here is Biden in a rare interview with George Stephanopoulos, also known as Democrat operative from the Clinton administration. But now he's a journalist, folks. We're supposed to believe that this guy doesn't have ideology or opinion. He's just a just a journo, man, just doing the job. Nobody really believes that. But I guess some people maybe do. Hmm. Here is Biden on uh, what he would. I love this is my favorite. This is what I would this is what I would do if I were president right now in the year 1957. This is what this is what I would do. Play 11. 
If you were president right now, what would you be telling governors to do? I would tell the governors to listen to Dr. Fauci, listen to the scientists, listen to what the facts are. Look, this is uh, uh, this president has to focus on what's going on here. We're in a situation where there is a great crisis. Dr. Fauci talks about if we open needlessly or open soon, there's going to be needless deaths. And we have to have things in place. Everybody wants to open, George. The governors want to open, but they want to open in a rational way. The president hasn't done his work. The president hasn't done what he's supposed to do. That's he hasn't provided the materials. He hasn't provided the. I mean, this is this is ridiculous the way he's talking about. You it. heard the president yesterday. This is not he said politics. That this is life. Yeah, the president hasn't done the thing where he would in the place. You know, we the people, the const, the thing, the stuff that we need for the virus or something. Or I mean, just blather, just malarkey. A malarkey spewing loon that's what this guy has turned into or that's maybe what he's been for a long time we have more gear more ventilators more masks than we're going to need for years okay we're as i said they're going to be taking ventilators and making them into snow cone makers in a few years because what are we going to do with hundreds of thousands of extra ventilators these are 30 40 thousand dollar pieces of equipment we were told if we didn't have them everybody was you know going to die and it was all going to be horrible and guess what we got way too many ventilators now. We've now become an exporter of these things, and we're not making money on it. We're just going to give them to other countries. <sighs> so Biden is just saying stuff that this is the talking point when you got nothing else to say. If I were in charge of the, you know, the stuff and the thing, and uh, you know, I would. Uh, it's just all. What does this even mean? And then he's asked a very specific question about whether the DOJ was right to drop charges against. General Michael Flynn, which now if someone does not agree with this, if they if they don't understand why the charges against Flynn were dropped, then they're just crazy. Right. Then they've just lost all rational thought processes, at least about this issue. And uh, here's here's Biden's response, which is the non response. Interestingly enough, I think it's because he realizes he couldn't really uh, if he got pushed on this issue, he would look bad and he would upset all the left wingers who still believe that General Flynn is a traitor for Russia like idiots. Here's Biden, uh, play 12. Was the Justice Department right to drop those charges against Michael Flynn? Well, based on a couple thousand, I guess I saw a headline the other day, yesterday, I guess, a couple thousand uh, um, former, uh, or was a couple hundred, I'm not sure, a whole lot of former Justice Department people said uh, the, the, uh, uh, the Attorney General should step down. I have been absolutely stunned by the way in which he has not conducted the office properly. But look, I, I, I don't know the detail of where we are right now. My point is a simple one. Focus on what's in front of us. You have plenty of time to investigate this issue. I think there's nothing there there. That's that's a great way. That, that, that's leadership, isn't it, folks? That's leadership. You're asked a question. You say, well, there's a, a bunch of other people wrote an editorial. And so, uh, yeah, what they said, sort of. But I'm not saying that. But that's what they said. Who the heck cares? And this is about these 2000 former DOJ officials signing their names for a calling for Attorney General Barr to resign because of what they call an improper intervention. This is a this is like a deep state cheat sheet. This is everybody you need to know from the deep state. All right. They, they, here you go. They're all they're all coming out of the woodwork being like, I'm deep state. They can't even explain to you why uh, the attorney general should resign other than the fantasy of he, he is responsible for the decision to drop. No, the reason they dropped the case against General Flynn which we're still waiting to see what Judge Sullivan does with that, from what I understand. I'm, I'm, 
well, I'll update that as we finally get a, a final. Producer Mark, would you just do me a favor and check, make sure I'm not I'm not behind the times on that one. I don't think Judge Sullivan has officially said the case is dismissed. I, I don't know what he could do when the deal. If no one's going to prosecute it, you'd think that. But you know, he might he might make a lot of noise about it. He might complain and you know show us that you know if only the DOJ had been a little bit less corrupt when it was prosecuting Flynn, uh, he would have allowed this thing to go forward. But even Judge Sullivan might have his limits. Uh, but but Biden, this is the this is the perfect encapsulation of Joe Biden's leadership or lack thereof. He's asked a direct question. He doesn't answer. He says, yeah, what that editorial with the other the smart guys who do the homework, what they said, did that thing. That's great. Remember, folks, the libs want you to believe that we'd all be safe and things would be better if only this old man who doesn't know where he is half the time were in charge. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I mean, literally, President Trump today came out to talk about how the United States is ready to reopen. And he, I mean, they can't even keep the pandemic out of the White House. Literally. Two officials tested positive there. Uh, three top health officials are self-isolating. Uh, doctors Fauci, Redfield, and Hahn of the CDC, uh, FDA, and, and uh, Dr. Fauci, of course, you know. Uh, and, I mean, it's, it's not funny. It, it's dark. Uh, but, I mean, it's almost as if sometimes the president doesn't understand that we can see and hear what's going on. That's some really... Bad analysis from fake Tapper, which is not surprising. Of course, the virus is still a threat all over the place. Of course, the virus can still infect people, including at the White House. The issue is how we reopen and how we start rolling back the power that state governments in particular have taken into their hands. To that end, I wanted to bring in our friend Robbie Suave. He is an editor and writer at Reason.com. He is one of those libertarians that we like that I tell you about sometimes when I refer, refer to the libertarians that we still like. That's Robbie Suave. Robbie, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, man. I thought I thought this country loved freedom. I thought that America was all about individual rights and constitutionalism and don't tread on me and give me liberty or give me death. But apparently it's give me liberty or give me death unless there's a virus that kills less less than one percent of the people out there, in which case I will stay home locked away as long as you tell me to without any constitutional authority or even state legislation that says so. What say you, sir? What happened to us? Yeah, I think it's a shame that big uh, crises often drive people reflexively into the arms of big government or to be demanding large, uh, heavy-handed authoritarian solutions uh, when often crises like this actually should be showing to us or providing us additional evidence of why we, we, we don't easily surrender our freedoms and why we, we shouldn't and don't uh, wisely come to rely on big government. I mean, for me, I, and I think for a lot of people, right, this has crystallized a lot of the problems with, I mean, part of their failure has been the CDC screwing up testing uh, from the beginning, um, learning all that we didn't know. I mean, the government underplayed the threat, then it overplays the threat, then it underplays it again. Um, you should be very wary of having a uniform, centralized kind of control uh, response to something like this because they do so often get it wrong. And, I, and I'm, you know, I'm talking in a philosophical sense, not even in a sort of narrow political sense um, having to do with this administration or any other. 
But uh, and so many rules that we put in place in, in a kind of knee-jerk way in response to crises, they look short-sighted and wrong uh, sometime later, and uh, and they often they often stay with us. We don't get rid of them. Uh, I think of the TSA and Patriot Act and all sorts oh, of other things we responded to the, in our last series. The, the TSA is going to look mean and lean and mean compared and effective <laughs> compared to the army of 100,000 disease tracers that we're supposed to set up now, according to the the experts. Who, as you said, look, this isn't it's not a partisan thing to say that government at all levels on both sides of the aisle and including the permanent government of the bureaucracy. And you mentioned the CDC. They've been wrong a lot on this. Now, they had imperfect information to begin with. And, you know, it's easy to play the hindsight game. But it is a fact that they've been wrong at key junctures over the last five months or so. And yet we keep hearing the same appeal to authority of just, you know, shut up, peasant. Listen to them. You're not an expert. I'm like, I'm going to listen to Governor Cuomo. This guy's a buffoon. This guy, for example, in New York, where the state that I'm in, I know you're down in D.C., he's presided over the biggest COVID-19 disaster in the world, and the media has somehow turned him into a hero. How is that possible? Well, what are the results that he's pointing to that we're supposed to think are so good? Yeah, turning, um, turning political figures into heroes, the issue is that political figures have an incentive to look strong and tough, like they're doing something, even if what they're doing uh, is not smart or may even be contrary to what the people want and actually might be contrary to what public officials say. I mean, there has been this effort to close beaches, for instance, in California, public uh, spaces that actually, to my mind, runs quite contrary to what we're learning and public health officials are telling us about where this disease is likely to spread. I mean, if you want people to do aggressive social distancing for the for the uh, just total, like, forever, for, for the months and perhaps years until we're going to get a vaccine is what it sounds like at some point, which I think is crazy. But one thing you're going to have to do then is let people into public, safe, uh, public spaces where it might be less risky to congregate. And everything we're learning tells us that beaches, parks, might be places like that, but of course the government officials are saying, nope, lock them down, we're being strong, and if you're, if you're violating what we're telling you, we're gonna throw you in jail. Uh, uh, Tom Wolf, uh, the governor of Pennsylvania, said something to that effect uh, yesterday. Um, it's just, you know, they, we have to be doing something, and this is something, so we're going to do it. That's like how political leaders operate, right? right. It's, not, it's not measured, it's not calm, it's not even responsive to what public health officials want a lot of the time. And I, I do think that, uh, I don't know if there's a little bit of an I told you so vibe coming from some libertarians like yourself or not, but on the right, where I, I clearly reside ideologically, we have a, a general um, appreciation for um, some would even say that go as far as to say reverence for having actually worked in law enforcement. I see the good and the bad in these things. But overall, we're very supportive of law enforcement. I feel like some of the libertarians out there might be pointing to the excesses of arresting a parent in front of their kids for being in a playground because of some governor's, you know, diktat. Uh, and you guys look at this and say, told you <laughs> that they will. Not all cops and not all state troopers, but some of them, when they're told to do things that they clearly shouldn't do, they'll do them. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think it's uh, a lot of people on the right are seeing that, the, you know, this is what it looks like uh, law enforcement in practice. Uh, I know there are a lot of conservatives who, who want to exercise their constitutional rights, too, uh, without being hassled by uh, by the police state. And I just think this is so counterproductive, by the way, to have like these kinds of police encounters where you're probably that involve heavy contact, by the way. Isn't the thing we're trying to prevent mm -hmm. is like physical contact? 
You know, it's good that people are, are broadly following. I think people are broadly following the social distancing guidelines. I think it's, it's fair to question how much longer we can follow the most aggressive form of that. Uh, but people have voluntarily complied even before the government started ordering them to shut down. So then it becomes if most people are going along with doing the right thing generally, why should we have the government step in in those couple exceptional cases and use like aggressive force to try to resolve those things. I think that just creates more problems than it solves to my mind. And that would be like sort of the libertarian reflection on that. And if people are mostly listening to what they're supposed to do on their own without being forced. Do we really need to stick guns in their faces? I don't think so. And, and libertarian Robbie Suave, I've got to, I've got to wonder uh, how, how you and your folks from your perspective view the possibility that some are raising of vaccination certificates ankle monitoring bracelets for people that are on quarantine app downloading to put your symptoms into so that the test and tracers can find you as quickly as possible. Uh, that to me sounds, if we were trying to create the turnkey ultimate surveillance state, we would have put in place. If we do these things, pretty much everything we need to do. And this is for example, what South Korea is doing. I mean, all those steps have been taken by some countries or at least by one country. Right. I mean, some of this stuff is concerning and, and also some of it is, even if it's not concerning, it's hard to imagine um, a, a, enough of the American public uh, accepting it as would need to happen. Um, I now, you know, I really want to get back to life as close to normal as possible as we can and reopen things. And I, despite being a libertarian, I might, you know, if we have to make trade offs between we're going to do this or we're going to, you know, have the, the armed guards keep everyone in their house for weeks, uh, I might say this is a better option. So I think it's fine to, to consider these things and have those conversations. Um, but it is it is true that a lot of it is kind of uh, kind of from the talk of dystopia. And it's just hard for me to imagine uh, it, it working out in any case. Oh, now, since I see it behind you and I, I feel like somehow I was must have been skipped by your PR agency. Usually we have people that are they're sending books like I haven't even heard of these people. They're sending books. They all want to come on the radio show and then plug the book. Robbie Suave has panic attack his book behind him on the shelf. I don't think I ever got to talk to you about it. I was well, what's the book about and how come we got skipped sure, on the list, about, Robbie? Uh, nothing to <laughs> it's about uh, it's about uh, viruses and pandemics. And no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's about uh, the problem of, uh, of free speech and due process on college campuses. Um, the threat to uh, actually traditionally liberal principles like free speech and due process from the college activist set, the woke uh, mindset. Uh, so I, I talked to a lot of students and professors who struggled with the mounting hostility to the norms of free expression um, in American um, higher education. Uh, actually, the due process stuff is, is a little bit relevant to, to what's happened just recently. Uh, Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos last week um, recommended changes to Title IX, which is the sexual uh, misconduct uh, adjudication, uh, which is something I talk about at great length in my book uh, that actually had a lot to do with not just harming due process, but also uh, harming free speech on campuses. Uh, Betsy DeVos has revised the bad existing guidance from the Obama administration. Of course, uh, uh, Biden, uh, Joe Biden swiftly promised to undo that if he becomes president. Uh, despite, of course, being in a position where he is actually, yeah. actually needs to be insisting upon due process for those accused of long ago sexual misconduct, uh, which I find stunningly hypocritical. See how we worked in that book plug for Panic Attack by Robbie Suave at the end here? Cool, like the other side of the pillow. I appreciate it. That's how we do it with the Freedom Hut. Robbie, thank you so much for joining, man. Good to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I think President Obama should have kept his mouth shut. You know, uh, we know he doesn't like much this administration is doing. That's understandable. But I think it's a little bit classless, frankly, to uh, critique an administration that comes after you. You had your shot. You were there for eight years. Um, I think the, the tradition that the Bush has set up of not critiquing the president who comes after you is a good tradition. Cocaine Mitch is like, hey, Barack Obama. You're gonna you're gonna step into the you're gonna step into the Thunderdome on this one with Trump. You better you better be ready for what comes your way. You know you better be ready for the fight ahead. And you know Mitch doesn't like the break with tradition here that the Bush has said. It's not a longstanding tradition, but I think it is a sensible one. Where the most recent president, I do think it's different for somebody. Once you know there's been a, I think that the president that precedes you as president, you shouldn't overly politicize, especially in the case of Barack Obama. When it looks like there's a lot of evidence that your administration tried to wound and maybe even destroy the administration that took over from you because they're from the other party, maybe be a little more circumspect about stuff. Maybe just be a little more chilled out when it comes to the Trump administration, if you're Barack Obama. And, and you know, cocaine Mitch don't play, as we know. So it, t- it takes a lot for him to to wade into some of these issues. He's not he's not a verbal brawler. But he's right on this one. He, he thinks that the, that the Obama administration, well, look, President Obama, he knew that this was going to leak from this phone call. It's not even a leak. It's really like a like a might as well be a, you know, a press, uh, something they put out as a press piece, trashing the Trump administration on a phone call with 3000 people. That's that's announcing it publicly for all intents and purposes. Uh, and, and I don't think that that Barack Obama is ready for what he would be up against if he really wants to publicly tangle with Trump. Uh, he, Barack Obama ran against, against John McCain and Mitt Romney, two guys who were very interested in the elite press, liking them, or at least patting them on the head sometimes and saying, you know, oh, you're a good little conservative, you know, good little John McCain, good little Mitt Romney. Once in a while, when they're not talking about how they're throwing old ladies off the cliff because they won't give them health care and, you know, all this other stuff, right? But they... Those two Republicans came from the old school of Democrats get to kick sand in our eyes, get to, you know, do the low blow, you know, do the kidney punches, whatever they want to do. And we sit there and say, oh, but we play by the rules. And Trump is just like, really? You want to fight dirty? I'll fight dirty, too. That was really people always talk about the the political genius of Trump. It's just recognizing what many of us had seen for a long time, which is that we thought on the right we would get points for playing nice and that eventually the good guys would win out if we were the ones who were being uh, yeah, if we were holding back and being gentlemanly. And no, they just kept throwing stuff in our face and then, you know, laughing all the way into the White House and into you know, majority in the House and majority in the Senate and trying to push the country to socialism. And yeah, sure. Good job, conservatives. But at least you played nice as you were getting slapped around. Trump doesn't do that. He, that's not the school that Trump uh, Trump goes to so or or that he teaches forget about goes to. So I don't know if, if Barack Obama would have uh, quite the the time that he thinks he would if he were to really become vocal. But here's the other problem Democrats face. They can't rely on Joe Biden himself to make the case. I can't rely. I mean, do, do we really think that Biden against Trump 
in a, in a public forum that this is going to go well for the guy who's like, uh, you know, the thing and the place and uh, and 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 think of who they've think of who the Democrats who claim that Trump has, you know, he's a liar and, 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 and a crook and so dishonest. The people that they put forward are Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. These are the most virtuous, worthwhile leaders the Democratic Party can find. Hillary Clinton, who uh, would gladly pay for the pleasure of selling her office. And Joe Biden, who, if he can find where his office is, we're all supposed to clap for him and, you know, bring him some apple juice in a sippy cup. This is ridiculous. Enough is enough. But they're not going to they're not going to change. So get ready for they're going to call every chip uh, that they have. They're going to they're going to throw in the middle here. They're going to do everything they can to take down Trump. And that's going to mean calling Obama out of semi-retirement or whatever it is. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. The Ahmad Arbery case has gotten a lot of conversation going across the country, and people seem to be somewhat divided on this one. I'm, I'm a little surprised, but when you look at some of the factors involved, the, the divisions perhaps should have been expected, uh, at least with the usual narratives popping up and uh, people who are going into one side or the other of what they think happened here. We're joined by Rob Smith to help us work through this. He's a contributor for The First TV, which you can watch on Pluto. Also, you can download The First TV's app. Uh, Rob is also the author of Always a Soldier, which is coming out soon. Rob Smith, good to have you on, buddy. Hey, thanks for, thanks for having me. Buddy. All right, man. So there's been some new developments, but t- <laughs> tell us where we are right now in the Ahmad Arbery case uh, and, and especially with, yeah. with what, what is the, the new video that's that's come up? So so first of all, with the Ahmad Arbery case, you know, this is it kind of exploded the Internet uh, predictably uh, upon racial lines over the past week and a half. What we find out is that back a couple of months ago, a young unarmed black man was was killed um, by two white men in Georgia. Um, the the initial narrative was that this person was jogging and that he was hunted down and, and, and killed by these men. Um, now we're finding out that there was a lot of stuff going on before, and there's kind of a lot of questions as to, you know, what he was doing, what the entire situation was. I think that when we first start talking about the conversation, we have to start off with the fact that um, in no way was his death justified, full stop. So we have to start right there. Um, and then we get deeper into the case and we find out that these were two men who maybe thought that um, he was somebody that was suspected of robberies in the neighborhood, but now we're finding out that there were no robberies reported in the neighborhood. So that's um, that's making that narrative a little bit shakier. We do know that they attempted to have some sort of citizen's arrest where they t- tried to stop him at gunpoint to question them. Um, and, and the thing about this is, is that fundamentally you take race out of it. Um, as an American, me or you, Buck, we are not required to submit to the will of another American that is not part of law enforcement just because they brandish a weapon. Um, so, so that's full stop. And I, and I think that that's one, a part of the narrative that a lot of people are missing. Um, and there's a lot of, of information coming out. They're saying, okay, well, this person um, who has been identified as a Mott Aubrey was lurking around a construction site, looking around um, out of pure curiosity. Again, doesn't justify um, stopping somebody, doesn't justify murdering them at all. Um, I have went to construction sites and looked around because I'm nosy. Um, I think that most Americans have done that. 
Um, so I, I think that the biggest problem with the narrative and the biggest problem with the social media fueled um, conversation about this that is so heavily drawn down racial lines is that there are a lot of people that are just trying to get to the bottom of exactly what happened. And there's a lot of people on the right sharing information, say uh, it's video of him at a construction site. Now there was video um, of allegedly him at other construction sites. And then we find out that that video is not necessarily him. Um, there are there are photos that have been disseminated on social media of one of the two men charged in the in the killing that some sort of right. uh, neo-Nazi white supremacist rally that has been debunked. So there's a lot of information right. coming this out. Is on what, this all is what happens right with now. the with the the internet detective work that a lot of there are real detectives, right? There's real law enforcement that yeah. has power of subpoena and and people get on the record yeah. and there are consequences for lying and so on and so forth. Uh, and then there's just the the Twitter, the Facebook, the what people find here, and all of a sudden it, it sort of catches catches fire. But one thing that I, I think that we're seeing in this, and, and I wanted your your take on it, Rob, is that people tend to, in these instances, it becomes very ideolo- ideologically charged and very politicized. I think that because there are these, the, the video, for example, of him at the construction site, it seems to me like some people think, oh, so there's this video before. Now we're in a changed situation than we were. And maybe they think back to the uh, the case uh, in Ferguson, right, where Mike Brown was yes. strong arm robbery involved in a strong arm robbery right before. But they're not making the critical distinctions between, as you point out, a strong arm robbery is not standing uh, and a strong arm robbery that leads to law enforcement, actual law enforcement stopping you is a very different thing from standing in a construction site and then having people stop you on the road because they think that maybe you're involved in something when they're not law enforcement. I just feel like people are trying to fit this into narratives instead of looking at the evidence as it comes out. And then people get dug into one view or the other or they won't change yeah. based upon the facts as they actually come. Like the fact of him standing at a construction site is not damning. And I think that, the, but people say, oh, well, there's a video and this is before and they start to, you know, the wheels start turning in this direction. No, that's not damning. No, it's not. And, and I think that uh, trying to look at this as objectively as possible, I think that when people get too bogged down into, well, we need to find this video, we need to find that video, and, and we need to prove this, that. Um, that starts to, to seem too much like kind of trying to justify this young man's murder. And that's, I think, that where we don't want to be. But I also th- I think that there can be two things can be true at the same time. You can have empathy for this young man who lost his life. And you can also be very wary of media fueled narratives um, that are meant to push a racially divisive uh, message. Yes. And I think that you have to you have to do both at the same time. And and at at a point and you brought up Mike Mike Brown, and that was a really good point to bring up, because we know that the hands up, don't shoot narrative uh, was false. So that was proven to be false. And we know this years after the fact. And I think that now what the Internet solutions are trying to do is they're trying to disprove the just the jogger narrative. And it is very possible that that is a false narrative, that he wasn't just a jogger that was stopped by these people. Um, still doesn't justify his death. But I, I think that we need to make sure that we're having, number one, empathy for this person. Um, number two, not trying to play Internet sleuths with, with footage that is not reliable or that is not verifiable. Um, and number three, make sure that we're not bogged down into these kind of racially divisive narratives that keep Americans thinking 
it's us versus them. It's white versus black. It's, you know, all, you know, these white people in Georgia were obviously white supremacists. And when you look at what Atlanta's mayor has done, when she's commented on the situation, she has completely inject, injected race and racism into it when she brings up, oh, well, you know what, in, in her words, uh, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, in her words, Trump's racist rhetoric is what makes this acceptable in America. And, and, and I think that right. we that, that's really reckless. Have to be that's careful. reckless politicization, of course. I mean, the, pre- the president it, it, it is not responsible reckless. for what two, two guys did. And yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah, no, not at all. Not at all. And, and it's really reckless. And I think that people, whether you're an elected office, whether you're a media personality, whether you have this reach like, like you do, like I do, I, I think that we just have to be careful in the way that we discuss things. Yeah. I well, think in, in the information that we put out and the information that we comment on. I, th- I think that there's also a lack of real understanding in the general public. And it, it's very it seems to be very regional. And, and there's almost a cultural differentiation between left and right on this, on their understanding of self-defense law and use of force, uh, use yes. of force as it as it applies to firearms. You know, yeah, there are places like Georgia's an open carry state. But if you as, as you know, Rob, if, if you brandish or you draw down on somebody without justification, that's a felony. Right. Because anyone could understand that if someone just pull, you know, if someone doesn't like what you said to them outside of a grocery store and they just pull a gun out and point it at you, that's obviously a crime. I mean, that's a threat of of, of imminent violence. And so then when you get into this exchange where there's video, which remember that the crime happened, I know you know this, but for our audience, crime happened over two months ago. I mean, sorry. The incident, yeah. I, you know, we don't that uh, they've been charged with murder. So they're there. Uh, the two the two guys who shot him have been charged with the crime. But the incident happened over two months ago. It's because of the video. But the video shows an exchange where I think a lot of people put themselves in the situation of somebody with a firearm who's not law enforcement tells you to stop. Uh, you, and they have no they have no justification. They're now inciting a situation where your fight or flight mechanism may kick in. And so, you know, this this gets very tricky because you can't just pull a gun on somebody because you think they did something wrong. And then what is the actual uh, what is the actual legal ramification of if that leads to a scuffle, which looks like is what happened and this individual got shot. But you cause that scuffle based on false premises. What's the what's the crime? What's the charge? You know, I mean, it seems to me like they're looking yeah. at at least involuntary manslaughter. Yeah. And I want to bring up we'll bring up uh, one of our colleagues at the first Dana Lesh, who I shared this on Twitter. She wrote a really, really great piece um, that really broke down the laws and the legality um, and what's going on in this in this case. And I think that a lot of people would would do themselves very well to go read her piece. I thought it was very well well thought out. I thought it was brilliant, actually. Um, it was the most well thought out piece that I've seen anybody write when it comes to this. But yeah, you have to think about the fact that you we're we're not vigilantes in America. It, it's not what we do, and so you can't make the argument that when a random citizen, because mind you, again, the, this is not law enforcement. So when a random citizen brandishes a gun at you, you're not required to submit. Um, and that fight or flight mechanism, like you said, takes place. Now, look, I, I'm I'm former military. Somebody brandishes a gun at me, you know, th- in my mind, that's life or death. And and you cannot fault this young man who who so tragically lost his life for standing up for himself and and fighting back when a non law enforcement citizen brandished a weapon at him. And I think that that's the most important key here. And and I really don't want us to miss that. 
Yeah, I mean, I had a I had an edge weapons instructor a long time ago. A friend of mine who was an edge weapons instructor overseas in Iraq, and you know, he told me once, if if you pull a knife on me, I'm not going to wait to see how good you are with that knife. That was just his way of saying, right. you know, he's like, I'm I'm not going to see, you know, oh, uh, what is this person going to decide to do with me? He's like, I'm going to take action in, in defense of myself. Um, and look, this is this is a case that's obviously going to continue to get a lot of national attention. It seems like law enforcement now, the federal uh, federal investigators are being called in on this one, too. So there'll be a lot of uh, a lot of attention paid to it. And I mean, I just just be- before we go, does it feel to you, Rob, like like the media gets any better at being with these with these very inherently racially charged cases, or, or at least they're inherently racially charged because of the way the media depicts them, uh, but there are, there are you know, undertones here that, that come to the fore. Do you feel like they ever get better at this? Do they ever get more responsible? I, they do not. But And the thing about it is, is that that's a complicated question as well because that depends on, on who you want to call the media. Um, if we're talking about the media just in terms of national news, um, then they, I think, try as best as they can to, to go down the facts. But then if we're talking about media in terms of politicians, in terms of personalities on both sides, in terms of people who have much larger platforms and ways to get their messages out there um, in, in ways that, that vastly override whatever you know calm, measured reporting um, the, the CBS or NBC or CNNs of the world can do, then I think, no, they don't get better because there are too many people that are too deeply entrenched um, in this world, uh, in this society that have too big of a platform. And their first thought is what is the far left perspective on this? What is the far right perspective on this? Instead of saying, what is the truth? And how, how do I use my voice um, as responsibly as possible to get to the truth? And to answer it in that way, I don't think that people are doing a very good job at all in either way. Rob Smith, everybody, contributor for the first TV, also author of Always a Soldier, which is coming out soon. We'll have him back on to talk about his book. Rob, man, good to see you. Always appreciate your perspective. Thanks for the time. All right, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Team, right before we get to roll call, I almost forgot the, the uh, would-be Democrat president of the United States was asked about uh, what about the women who will not vote for him because of the Tara Reid allegations? Uh, you know, the, the Democrat dance on this whole subject has been fascinating to watch. They'll just say whatever they feel like saying. I mean, there's there's no accountability. There's it's just the, the, they've changed. I mean, the, the standard under Kavanaugh was one thing. The standard under Biden is another. The standard for Trump was one thing. The standard for Biden is another. And, you know, you, you'll never hear. Uh, I mean, you had anchors, even CNN anchors that have said many times, you know, Trump sexually assaults. They say it as a matter of fact. They don't just say that there have been allegations. They'll say that Trump sexually assaults women. Uh, have they ever said that about Joe Biden? Why? Oh, oh of course. We know why, because CNN is an appendage of the DNC taking taking orders um, from. Well, actually, I'm, I wonder sometimes maybe the DNC is an appendage of CNN. But here you have uh, Joe Biden when he's asked about that right before. I wanted to get this in before we get to roll call. Uh, play clip nine here. 
on these allegations from Tara Reid. I know you've denied them, but you've also said that women should be believed. So what do you say to Americans who believe Tara Reid and won't vote for you because of it? Well, that's their right. Look, here, look, I think women should be believed. They should have an opportunity to have their case and state it just forthrightly, what their case is. Then it's the responsibility of responsible journalists like you and everyone else to go out and investigate those. The end of the day, the truth is the truth. That's what should prevail. And the truth is, this never happened. This never happened. I assure you, that's the truth. Why doesn't anyone ever ask Joe Biden, is Tara Reid lying? That's a question that I think they should ask. He's saying it didn't happen. So really, what alternative is there other than that he's suggesting that Tara Reid is, in fact, lying? She's lying. And this must be for politically motivated reasons or some kind of bitterness. But they never ask that. Somehow we're supposed to think that Joe Biden believes Tara Reid, but is telling us that what she's saying is not true. Now, that seems to be the the bridge that he's trying to straddle between these two issues. You know, uh, he, he believes her or, or thinks that people ha- people should believe her and hear her. But she's not telling the truth. There's a problem here. And you should also remember Robbie Suave mentioned this uh, in earlier in the show. Biden and the Obama administration were all about re- removing any Title IX Uh, any Title IX procedural protections for men on campus accused of sexual assault. So it's not like he's even changed his tune on due process in general. Just due process for Joe Biden right now, because the Democrats really need it. That's that's what we're being told. But also just that that he thinks that we need to be told in this this very kind of weird and and almost almost condescending way. You know, she has a right to tell her story. uh, Forth, forthrightly, and yeah, 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 we know she has a right to say what she wants to say, yeah, yeah, jackass. The point here is, do people get to assess that, or do we get to, uh, do we have to believe her, because that's what the Democrats were all saying about Kavanaugh, and that Kavanaugh should step down merely because of the allegation. Step down from the confirmation process of being in the Supreme Court. Oh, Joe Biden doesn't have an answer to that. Doesn't have an answer. All right, now we can get to roll call. Hit it. Liberty, truth, and great hair. Feel those funky beats. It's time for roll call. All right, roll call, everybody. Thank you so much for joining for this Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. If you want to be in on the roll call action uh, or team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. If you want to email us, if you hear some snorting, it's because my French bulldog is sitting in my lap as I do this uh, because she's running around the apartment and making too much noise as I'm doing the radio show. So there you have it. Uh, I am not all of a sudden developing a loud daytime snore nor do I snort constantly, or at least not as much as my little furry friend here does. Um, but she's now being a very good girl and sitting quietly. I think she just wanted some attention. That's right, Tallulah. You're a sweetheart. Okay, here we go. Alan. Hey, Buck. Good day to you. I happen to be one of those people that hasn't spent one day in self-quarantine because of where I live. I also vote with my feet. I live in areas where they believe in the Constitution you really need to take your show to one of those great flyover states. Shields high, keep your powder dry, and your voice strong. Well, thank you, Alan. And uh, yeah, man, I, I 
kind of envy anybody who's able to exercise basic day-to-day freedom. Producer Mark, what is the first thing, the first thing that if everything were reopened, which is going to be a long time before that happens, but if everything were back in action, is the first thing a sporting, I mean, a big sporting event for you? Is the first thing going to a, a Mets game because you're a Mets fan, unfortunately? What do you mean, Instead unfortunately? Just saying. If you can name, like, a player on the Yankees right now, then I'll, I'll let you mock me. <laughs> I, I, I actually cannot. Okay. If you ask who my favorite Yankee is, I would say Don Mattingly. Wow. That is a uh, throwback. And he's currently, yeah. do you even know that he's a manager in Major League Baseball right now? I didn't, but I know the guy had a great mustache back <laughs> in the day. Fantastic. Uh, I yeah. guess sporting event, but I think in general, just my life back. Just going to yeah. work, having a routine, doing stuff. Yeah. Is there one restaurant that you're like, if it were open, I'd go back to it? Uh... Maybe like a good Italian place. It's hard to make mm-hmm. at home Italian, and takeout's not the same. Oh, man, the Snow Princess, she, she thought I was having a hard day yesterday, and she was right. So she made um, gluten-free spaghetti carbonara, which was so good that she caught me sneaking some cold out of the fridge because we had some leftovers cold? this morning for breakfast. <laughs> I mean, you could have at least put it in a bowl and heated it up. That's Buck. what she said. She's like, you're not going to like put it in the microwave or anything? I was like, um... I like it cold. <laughs> no, you don't. Who likes it cold? Like I'm like the kid that that eats too much of the cookie dough before it goes in the oven, but I'm doing it with cold with cold carbon. Which she just pointed at me and said, "I also do that," which is true. Oh, uh, I mean, eating cookie dough is completely normal. Eating cookie dough, producer Mark says, eating cookie dough is legit. I'll have yeah, you know. I will literally just buy a pack of cookie dough and not bake it. <laughs> he just said he'll just eat the cookie dough when he buys the pack of it. Uh, I love it. Yeah, that's a thing that could happen sometimes. All righty. Um, oh, I just would say for me, the thing that I would do for restaurants or I'm really into restaurants. I'm not somebody that goes to that many concert venues or anything like that. So uh, but it would be great to be able to go to the U.S. Open because I do like to do that uh, this fall. So that's like end of August, early September. If that's back, that would be really nice. But I don't know. Huge. I mean, that's going to be tough because you got huge crowds and a lot of a lot of challenges there. All right. Back to roll call here. Christine, hey, Buck, I listen to your podcast each morning while I hike with my dog. I suffer from PTSD, so hiking with my dog, listening to you really helps tame my morning anxiety. Oh, thank you, Christine. I'm glad that we can we can help you. However, I don't know why you keep giving Gavin Newsom a pass. I'm a third generation Californian who cannot stomach what Gavin is doing to our beautiful state. His response has been horrible. We're the first state to get COVID-19 and have low death rates, yet he ignores the numerous studies from Stanford and USC that show lockdown is wrong. I couldn't believe Mike Slater was so easy on him. Those masks from China are a big deal. Park beaches and playgrounds, parks, beaches and playgrounds rather, are shuttered with police tape to make us feel like we're living in a police state. Shields high. I enjoy the show and listen to you and producer Mark along with the Tulu updates. Tulu, do you want to say something? I'm trying to see if she'll make some little snorty noise into the, you know, she'll make her radio debut. Come on. Come on, make a little, do the little piggy noise you do. Come on. Come on. Get nothing? Uh, she's she's right now. Now she's being shy. She doesn't want to. She's right next to the mic and she doesn't want to do it for do it for us. Uh, but Christine, you know, I've I don't think and I look, I don't want to. Mike Slater is my man. He's my my colleague and a great guy. So I, I don't want to speak for him. Um, I don't think that I have been easy on Gavin Newsom. I think that he was smart enough politically not to look like a big anti-Trump hack in the early stages of this, which also Cuomo was trying to do in the early stages. 
So there was a little bit of bipartisan goodwill when we were all very scared and this seemed like a really big problem. Um, as for uh, my sense of Newsom, yeah, I mean, of course, California is terribly run. I mean, the last person, the last time I was in California, and this is this is the truth, I actually saw someone. I mean, I don't even want to describe it on radio, but I saw someone in with in a crowded place, you know, relieve themselves in a way that you would only expect to see in a up oh, there it was. You heard a little a little bit of a snort from her uh, in a third world country. So it was I'm well aware of how poorly run California is and what a, a really what a massive big state lib Gavin Newsom actually is. So I think that. Uh, yeah, I think that that's a, a real problem. And if I haven't been hard enough on Newsom, well, then I apologize. And I got to I got to make sure that I work on that a little bit. But um, thank you very much for writing in. Always good to always good to have the perspective of Team Buck, California. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I will have you know that producer Mark just asked me who's gained more weight in quarantine, me or Tallulah. And I will tell you that the Frenchie and I, we have quite a competition going right now, but uh, we're, we're just, we're quarantined pleasantly plump. Uh, she's an old lady. She's 11. So that's like 77 in dog years. So she's, she's way up there. Back to a roll call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Jessica writes in, hey, Buck, I have some family from Minnesota and your accent representing them doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> I could just be ignorant on their accent, but you sound more Jamaican, in my opinion. It's still funny, though. Shields, hi. I sound Jamaican? <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know about Jamaican. I, 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 would, I wouldn't say it sounds Jamaican. So it's basically, if you've ever seen um, the mom in uh, Bobby's World, or if you've ever seen Fargo, they kind of have this, like, they talk. They, and it's not everywhere. And It's been explained to me. This is from the Youpers. Um, in in Upper Peninsula, Michigan, and probably maybe just some parts of, of Minnesota, you have to also remember regional accents are very specific. So I'm here in New York City, and people always say I don't have a New York accent. Well, I actually sound like people from Manhattan. There are Brooklyn accents, there are Queens accents, there's Long Island, there's Jersey. Producer Mark, do you think you have a, a a bit of a a bit of a Long Island? I used to a lot more. Like I moved to Florida when I was a kid, and everyone was like, "Why are you saying water like that?" and stuff like that. Yeah. But then once I realized I was getting into broadcasting, I kind of nipped yeah, it in you... the bud and wanted to sound Midwest like you're supposed to. Right, right. The uh, the what is it they call it? Like the um, the non non regional Mid Atlantic uh, broadcaster exactly. diction. Yeah, but no, I mean, the producer Mark knows, I mean, if he, he comes from Long Island, and yeah, that's a perfect example. If you're from Long Island, you'll say water, you'll say talk, you'll say car. These are, these are accent things that come from, uh, from Long Island, from, from Brooklyn, from Queens. Um, so, yeah, there you have it. Glenn, uh, Buck and producer Mark, in regard to General Flynn, you always say that the process is the punishment. Even if they wouldn't get a prosecution in D.C., wouldn't it still be fair to run these people through the process and financially inconvenience them. Thanks for the truth you spread. Shields high. Uh, so you're saying, why don't they press charges against the people that set up General Flynn? And to that, I'll just tell you, they won't do it because they don't want to do it. Because they would view it, they would view it as too damaging uh, for the morale of people who still work in the FBI in these places. 
you know, there's but there's really not a good answer for this. I mean, you're probably saying, well, Buck, who cares? They they they'll prosecute people who are low level for far more minor things than what happened here at a very senior level. And that's definitely true. But um, they just won't they won't do it. I mean, I can tell you that. Look at what they have. Look at what with uh, went down with McCabe lied under oath twice. The inspector general said they said he was lacked candor, which is a fancy way of saying he lied. And they didn't press charges against him just because they're not going to because the machine takes care of its own. I wish there was a more satisfying answer than that, but there really isn't. Uh, So I'm just telling you the truth, as I always do. Jake. Hey, Buckster, now the charges against Flynn have been dropped. What will the reparations be for the cost he incurred to reputation and finances during the course of the investigation? Is there any mandated reimbursement of legal fees if the investigation turns out to be bunk, or does a person have to pursue a costly civil case to get their money back? Reputation is a harder one battle unless the government is willing to prostrate itself publicly to fully exonerate someone, which it won't. Thanks for all you do, Shields High. Jake, uh, you are uh, you're correct about how it's tough to get your reputation back and that the government, unless that's why, for example, in the Duke lacrosse case, no, that wasn't federal government. That was a uh, local prosecutor in the, in the uh, district attorney's office. For, for Durham in North Carolina. Uh, but that's why when they came out and said these people were, meaning the Duke lacrosse, lacrosse kids, it's not that they were not guilty. They were innocent. They came out and said there was absolutely nothing that they did wrong. And, the, and you know, they had, a, they had one kid, for example, who was miles away when this thing happened and the woman claimed that he was one of the ones that assaulted her. So uh, that's unusual, though. You're right. Usually the government will not say, hey, we're terrible and horrible and we messed this thing up really badly. You know, uh, Ruby Ridge, which gets attention now because of the Waco series that I highly recommend. Producer Mark watched it all. I watched it all. I mean, Mark, what do you give it? A A minus? Yeah, A minus. A minus. Yeah, I say definitely A minus. A minus B plus for me. Uh, It Ruby Ridge. I think the federal government ended up paying out three million dollars to that family in damages. So does Flynn have a civil case against the government? I would I would like to think so. But that's tricky. There's all this qualified immunity that kicks in, especially for prosecutors. There's very little good oversight of prosecutorial abuse. It's incredibly rare for a prosecutor to go to prison. Mike Nifong, who was the prosecutor in the Duke lacrosse case. Now, that's state, not federal. He was disbarred and fired. He didn't go to prison. And he was knowingly and willfully trying to send young men to prison for a rape that he knew did not happen and they did not commit. He didn't go to prison. So prosecutors can get a. There is nothing that is more dangerous to your liberty, really, in this country than a power mad leftist prosecutor. There's not, honestly any power mad, just power mad, power mad prosecutor. Nothing more dangerous to your liberty. Uh, Robert writes, I am so glad you rated the movie Uncut Gems as an eye stabber. I tried it about four months ago and had to stop halfway through it. Never picked it up again. Sandler just seems to try way too hard. He overacts almost every scene. The dialogue is unnecessarily vulgar as well. It was just bad. Love the show. Hope you're able to get out soon because you're sounding a bit edgy these days. Hang in there. Oh, Robert, you know, I've been locked up for two months. So, yeah, I probably do, do get, feel a little edgy. Producer Mark, we only got about 20 seconds, but you want to respond to Robert's uncut gems? You're just both wrong. It was one of Sandler's best ever performances. <laughs> there you go. That's how we'll end the show today. Producer Mark says you're both wrong. All right. We'll leave it there. Please do check out BuckSexon.com, team. Uh, we got more and more new stories going up there. Also, subscribe. We got a couple thousand. We want thousands and thousands more. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. 
It's YouTube.com slash Buck Sexton. More and more videos going up there. Until tomorrow, Shields High.